you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 7 as we continue to work our way through this book. Uh, if you were here last week, one of our elders, Craig Caps, did a phenomenal job preaching through the last uh, part of Romans chapter 6. Um, I was blown away. It was Craig's first time to preach on a Sunday morning, and he was faithful to the text. He was engaging. Uh, he was pastoral. Uh, he just did a terrific job. Great illustrations. The whole thing was fantastic. I was personally very blessed by it, so I'm grateful for him. At one point, Craig said that, made the point from the text that as Christians, we are free from sin. We, uh, sin has no power over us. It is not our master. And if you missed that sermon, uh, would encourage you to go back and listen to it online. Uh, Craig made the point that, again, that sin, we're not enslaved to sin anymore. And I think it's, it's worth listening to again because it doesn't always feel like that, does it? feels like we're under the bondage, enslaved to sin. So go back and, and, tr and listen to that again, or if you haven't for the first time. If you were here a month and a half ago, I preached uh, a sermon through Romans uh, chapter 4 uh, entitled, How People Change, Part 1. And I said to you then that in a few weeks we would be looking at part 2 of How People Change. Well, this morning is part 2. And uh, no worries if you weren't here uh, the first week during part one of that series. Hopefully, uh, it'll all make sense as we move along. I don't suppose there's anyone in this room who would be willing to say, um, you know, there's not a single area in my life that I don't want to see change in. Uh, there's no one, I think, who would say, I'm, com I'm a completely... A perfect person, and I have fully arrived in all areas of my life, and there's not a single category in which I would like to see some growth, some progress, some improvement. We all struggle with sin. We all struggle with uh, imperfection. Uh, and in so many ways, we actually see, at least by our own estimation, very little improvement, very little progress. We all want to become better people. That's not even a distinctly Christian virtue. Pretty much everybody you meet, as far as I can tell, will say, Christian or not, will say, yeah, there are some areas that I'd, I'd really like to, to improve in. So what do we do? I mean, how do we actually see that improvement? How do we actually see growth in our lives? We typically conclude, well, I, I need more discipline. I need more effort. I need more rules, more law. That is to say, I've got to ratchet up the moral rules in my life, the self-imposed regulations. That's kind of the, that's the philosophy, the mindset behind New Year's resolutions. I'll make these new rules for myself, these new uh, regulations for myself. I'm going I'm to get to the gym three times a week. I'm going to uh, limit my portions when I eat. I'm going to read more. Uh, not eat fatty foods, whatever it is, we make those rules, but then we find we very quickly violate them. So we say, well, I'll, I'll apply certain consequences. Maybe that will help me if I, if I apply certain consequences when I violate those rules. We, we say, I just can't keep on doing this. I have to stop lusting. And so there was, a, there was an old technique, psychological technique a few years ago where a person would wear a rubber band on his wrist, and then sort of pop the, the rubber band when he would lust. We tell ourselves, I've got to stop using profanity. And we put a curse jar in the kitchen that we say, I'm going to deposit money into every time 
I use a profane word. We tell ourselves, I've got to stop buying things that I don't need, so I'm going to put a, a self-imposed limit on my credit card. So if I go to buy and I exceed my limit, I just cannot make that desired purchase. We, we tell ourselves, I have to stop looking at pornography, and we say, the next time I do, I will punish myself severely. I've got a, a friends who are brothers. They're about five or six years apart in a different state, and they, they agree. They said the next time that one of us looks at pornography, we have to, that person has to call mom and, and tell her what we looked at. And this actually was successful for a while, but even that did not have the desired effect. So we, we, we put these consequences into place, we put these rules into effect, but we realize they don't really work that well. They're not bringing us the sort of growth or maturation that we desire. Now, there's nothing wrong, of course, with, uh, there's nothing wrong with goals, there's nothing wrong with limits, there's nothing wrong with, with self-imposed rules and regulations, but they just, again, what we realize is they don't really seem to be effective. Well, the Apostle Paul in the last chapter and a half of Romans has come up with an entirely way of looking at this, and it's actually kind of shocking, really. Paul says the solution to attaining to righteousness isn't that we need to try harder or apply rules to our lives. Paul has discovered in the gospel a righteousness that is ours simply by believing. According to Paul, the way to have righteousness is to trust in God, to believe that God hands out, so to speak, Jesus' righteousness for free. Paul says that when we believe, we're, we're justified, we're declared not guilty for all of our sins and our offenses. We're adopted into God's family, we're clothed, we're wrapped in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Righteousness is not something we work really hard to earn or the result of a set of meeting us measurable goals, it's something we receive for free by believing. Well, understandably, that, that sparks all kinds of questions and, and naturally even objections. Namely, won't that lead to chaos and immoral meltdown? If people can be declared righteous without doing anything, won't that lead to spiritual apathy? Won't that then prompt people to do whatever they want to do if they know they're already forgiven and righteous in Christ? And Paul says, actually, that's not how it works at all. Incredibly, the opposite takes place. He'll go on to explain what he means in chapter 7, and we're going to cover uh, this morning verses 1 through 12. So let me begin by reading Romans 7, verses 1 through 4. Here reads the word of the Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, from speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So remember, when Paul talks about the law, he's not talking about the laws of the land. He's not talking about speed limits and no loitering signs or whatever it is. He's actually talking about the law of God, uh, specifically the Mosaic law, but then more generally all the commands of God. 
And Paul will use this beautiful analogy, um, which we're going to explain in just a moment, but but we have to understand that when when he talks about the law in this way, he's talking to a church made up largely of Jewish people who revered God's law. They sought in every way to keep the law, and many, if not most of them, believed that it was by obedience to the law that they could secure a right standing with God. And here Paul, in in really chapters 3 through 7, it's almost as if Paul is denigrating, or at least in some ways downplaying the law. He says in verse 3 that God has disclosed his righteousness apart from the law. Now that doesn't offend us, but it would have offended the first, the earlier audience. Then in chapter 4, Paul says that the law brings God's wrath. And then in chapter 5, Paul says that when the law slipped in, it caused the violations to increase. Then in chapter 6, Paul says that as Christ followers, we're no no longer under the law. And that would have been infuriating to this Jewish audience. Again, it's a church made up of Jewish folks and Gentiles coming together, united in Christ, trying to work out their differences in love through the power of Christ. And Paul says this, recognizing that the Jewish folks in the church would have, would have objected to that. And then, as if that's not enough, Paul says in 7.1, or do you not know, brothers? Okay, this is, this is an insulting way to begin a sentence. Have you ever said to someone, don't you realize or, or don't you understand? Now, what, what happens when you do that? They're immediately put on the defensive. Paul says, or do you not know, brothers, from speaking to those who know the law, a bit of a jab there, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. But, but you, he says, have died to the law. Now you're free. About 15 years ago, a couple in the church that I serve reached out to meet with me and had not met them before. And I said, sure, we scheduled a time. And when we met for the first time, um, they were in their early 60s. He was maybe two or three years older than she was. Um, They came to me and they wanted, well, they said they wanted marriage counsel, but I'll tell you in a minute what they really wanted. Um, uh, As we discussed more, I found out that this this was her fifth marriage and his fourth marriage. And they sat down within minutes. They said, look, we're done with this marriage. They'd only been married. They'd been married less than a year. They were, they were married, they were newlyweds, they, you know, in the early stage of the marriage, they said, we're over it. We are so done with this marriage. And I said, well, you know, help me understand what's going on. They, they share with me some of their struggles and, you know, what they were going through. And I said, look, now, I also would discover through that conversation that in several of their previous divorces, they had been divorced on unbiblical grounds, so they didn't have biblical grounds for divorce. And I said to you, I said to them, I said, look, um, God is gracious, and God forgives. And if you've sought God's forgiveness, he's not holding against you your past divorces. But, but God's grace, do not presume upon God's grace. Because he's a, gr- a gracious God, it doesn't mean you want to continue in sin. You have no biblical grounds for divorce. You need to fight for your marriage. You need to do whatever it takes to remain because you've entered into this covenant with and before God. Uh, And then I said something to them that I I regretted almost immediately afterward, not because it wasn't true, but I saw the looks on their faces. I said, look, you've entered into this covenant with him before God. I said to them, I said, you are together until one of you dies. Now, I say I regretted that because I immediately saw the most terrifying looks on their faces. 
And I don't, want, I don't know if I read into it, but what I, what, it was almost like a light bulb went off and they said, hmm, <laughs> really? You're saying until one of us dies and then we can end this marriage. I'm not saying they would have plotted some nefarious scheme, um, but it did look like the wheels were turning for sure. Well, Paul uses this marriage analogy here and the death of a spouse to illustrate the point in the same way that a woman who's lost her husband to death is free from that spouse, obviously no longer united to him, we who are in Christ are free from the law having died to it. And then he stretches the analogy a bit further and says, in the same way that a widow who marries again is united to her new husband and thus belongs to him, we who are in Christ have been united to Christ and belong to him. Look at verse four again. Paul says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him that is Christ who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. New Testament theologian John Murray comments beautifully on this verse. He says, discharge from the law is not an end in itself. It is directed to a positive end. This is another way of setting forth what has been repeatedly noted in this epistle, this, this letter, that union with Christ in his death must never be severed from union with him in his resurrection. You say, what in the world does that have to do with changing or improvement? Here's what that means, our first point. Spiritual transformation happens not through increased rules, law, but through reminders of the power and security of our relationship with Jesus, gospel. So just having a set of rules, even if they're God's rules, or knowing the right things to do, does not necessarily give us the ability nor motivation to do what we know is right. But being united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection actually produces love from the inside out and obedience that is born out of love. So one of the other benefits that Paul, uh, benefits of the marriage analogy that Paul uses here is it denotes security. Security. You ever been around um, a couple that are just brand new in their dating relationship? And, you know, it's fresh and, and it's exciting and it's thrilling and everything's new and, it, you know, it's warm and fuzzy and they, they, they can't stop smiling and giggling. It just makes you want to vomit. Um, and, but there's, so they have all this new stuff and it's so exciting, but there's also a nervousness about it because, you know, there, there's an anxiousness to it because there are so many unanswered questions. How long will this continue to be this good? What if I like her more than she likes me? What if she doesn't like my friends? What if he doesn't like my parents? What if she finds out about my past? What if he gets tired of my jokes? What if she begins to think that I'm not good enough for her? So it can be a season filled with insecurity, that, that new dating relationship, as exciting as it is. Well, in marriage, there's security, at least they're supposed to be. You've got the man, you know, you've got the woman. You've put a ring on it. And when you're sure of that other person's love and there's that, there's that covenant, there's that commitment, fear is gone and anxiety is replaced actually by confidence. 
and a willingness to give, your, give of yourself and to be vulnerable. Security drives you to make tremendous sacrifices and to go to great lengths to please that other person. Well, if you are in Christ, you've already got him, so to speak. And he's already got you. So there's a, there's a security in that relationship. His love is completely yours and it will never change. You are united to Christ in his resurrection. His power is flowing through you. And the good thing is he's not going anywhere. Pictures for our website. He's not going anywhere. He's here. He's not leaving you. He sees you as beautiful and holy. And he already knows your past. He knows what you've done. And you're completely forgiven of every offense. And now you might think, okay, that sort of awareness, that recognition, that security in love, in relationship is going to lead us to, you know, maybe uh, be less concerned about the other person or maybe a recklessness. But that's not how it works. That sort of security actually breeds a confidence and a desire to please uh, the other person. So now look at verses five and six. Well, let me, let me just, let me offer a little bit of application here. So what do we do with this so far? Well, it's great to establish goals. It's, it's great to, you know, to put uh, standards and so on to make resolutions. But remember, when it comes to your spiritual or your moral progress, adding more rules will not cut it. So instead, what do we do? We rest in Jesus. We revel in his love. We recognize what we have. He is the faithful husband. He is the one who will never leave us, who will never depart us. The law can never condemn you because Christ has lived for you and has died for you. And the more that we believe that, the more that we really rest in that, the more we will long to obey him and to serve him. So let's continue with verses five and six. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That's verses five and six. So when Paul says that our sinful passions were aroused by the law, he's not blaming the law for our sins, what he's doing is he's saying that far from being an effective deterrent to sin, the law actually provokes our sinful hearts. As Paul will make clear repeatedly, the problem is not the law. The problem is our own sinful hearts. The law held us captive, Paul says, but now we serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the law. The written code he talks about, which is a, sort of a euphemism for the law. So Paul is, you, you, you've heard me say many times, in fact, I said it just in our, we had a great Capshaw Academy launch on Wednesday. Um, it's going to be a great discussion. There's still a few seats available if you want to join us on Wednesday night at 630. But I mentioned on Wednesday that, that the Christian life, and I've said this before, is filled with tension. It's filled with tension. Well, here Paul is articulating this beautiful tension of the Christian life. It's, yes, we are going to fail. We're going to fall. We're still going to sin. Paul's painfully aware that the Christian life is, a, is, an, is an up and down struggle. In fact, just wait till next week. We get into the last half of Romans 7. Paul says, all the things I really want to do, I don't do those things. And all the things I know better and I don't want to do, I just keep doing. The struggle is real. And what Paul is saying here is 
The believer's service is not characterized by the, by the lifelessness and ineffectiveness of the law, but by the, fresh, the freshness and the power of the Spirit who indwells the believer. So here's our second point. Life in the Spirit is a life of hope. Not the promise of imminent perfection, not perfection that'll happen right away, but the hope of God-sustained progress. This is so important. One of the points that I made a few weeks ago is if we're going to change, and I think some of you need to hear this this morning very explicitly, if we're going to change, we have to believe that we can make progress in our holiness, not because of our resolve, not because of our strength, not because of our moral goodness, but because we have the Spirit of Christ in us. Because we are united to Christ, we can and will grow. So don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. God is not finished with you yet. He is constantly at work in ways that you can't even see or fathom, molding you and and shaping you into the image of his son. It may not feel like it, but you are free from sin and alive to Christ. You have a new, quote, husband, as Paul would say. Sin does not have mastery over you. You belong to the Lord Jesus, and he will finish what he has started in you. As we've already seen, when we do blow it, when we do fall to temptation, God doesn't shrink back from us. He doesn't withdraw his love or grace. He actually draws near to us and reminds us, you belong to me. I've already forgiven you. My son paid for that sin you just committed, and I will never hold it against you again. Now look at the last section, verses 7 through 12. What what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I, this is Paul speaking. I was once alive apart from the law, I'll explain in a minute. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now that's, I mean, there's a lot in there as you can tell. But one of the things I want to point out is Paul has said, several seemingly negative things about the law. Several seemingly pejorative things about the law. He said the law cannot produce obedience from the heart. The law incites rebellion. The law deceives and makes empty promises, he says. And even seems to say that the law makes things worse. That commands cause people to send more all of which might cause someone to say, okay, now I finally get it. The problem is the law. The law is sin. And Paul, of course, anticipating that response, that objection, he says, no, absolutely not. The law is not sin. The problem is not sin. The law is 
holy and righteous and, and good. We just have to understand what the law is for. So let me try to break this down a little bit. There is a sense in which the law, and again, we're talking about specifically the Mosaic law, but generally all the commands of God. So there is a sense in which the law always accuses, always. Uh, when we read, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, we cannot help but immediately think, I've not done that. I've not done that, love God in that way. When we read uh, that we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who abuse us, we have to say, I've not done that. When I read that, I, I immediately realize I've not done that very well. I've failed in that area. When we read uh, the command of God that we're to love and treasure Jesus more than our own children, more than our own parents, more than our own family, we read that and we stand accused. We say, well, I've not certainly done that perfectly. So the law accuses us. It reveals the sin in our lives. That's what Paul means in verse 7 when he says, I would not have known sin except through the law. The law defines sin and exposes sin in our own hearts. So there's a sense in which the law accuses. There is a sense in which the law, the commands, actually incite rebellion. More specifically, we might say the law aggravates or provokes the sin within us. But how so? Well, there exists in the unglorified heart, so each of us, you, you know, if you're in Christ, you have a redeemed heart. You've been given a new nature, but we still live with a residue of indwelling sin. And there's in the unglorified heart, which we all have, uh, there exists a perverse desire to do what is wrong just because we're told not to do it. Just because it's forbidden. Now we see this, you know we see this as parents all the time. Um, especially of young children. As anytime we establish a boundary that becomes the very thing that our young child wants to transgress. But before there's the boundary, they have seemingly no desire to do what we've uh, called them not to do. Paul uses the analogy of marriage in this passage. Well, speaking of marriage, I've counseled many, many couples over the year who, years who have been who are trying to recover from infidelity. And this is such a heartbreaking and painful and long and difficult road. Almost invariably, the sinned against party, the one who has been offended, will ask, and certainly naturally and rightly, what, what did I do? Like, why did you do that? And more specifically, why, why would you do that to me? And then, you know, why did it go on so long? And the answer that is so common is, it was the lure of the forbidden. When I was in high school, 17 years old, I was hanging out with a guy who was nine years older than I was. He was 26. Um, he was a believer and he was a professed Christian. And he just had, he just was so much fun to be around. He had this huge personality and we went everywhere together. Well, my mom wasn't real keen on the idea, frankly. I mean, hanging out with a guy who's 26 years old, I was 17. She's like, John, why would a 26 year old want to hang around with a 17 year old? Like something about that just doesn't make sense to me. You know, moms, they have that wisdom. They have that, that natural intuition and insight. I said, mom, and look, 
This is not any ordinary 17-year-old we're talking about here. I mean, so I tried to justify, make sense of it. And I thought, you know, it was all good. Well, one day we're riding, and we didn't get into any horrible stuff, but one day we're riding along, and this guy, again, 26, I'm 17, he says, I've got to tell you something I've never told another person. Well, of course, this never ends well. And, you know, 17, I don't know. I said, what, what, what's going on? He goes, well, I've been having a six-month-long, he was married and had a little baby who was maybe nine, 10 months old. He said, I've been having a six-month-long affair uh, on my wife with a woman at work. And I was just crushed. I mean, I was devastated because I knew both of them, him and his wife, and I thought his wife was a wonderful person, and I just could not even imagine the pain that he would go through. And I didn't know what to say. I had no idea how to respond. And all I could say to him was, like, why? Why would you do this to your wife? And he actually kind of smirked and looked at me and said, you know, tempted by the fruit of another. Now, of course, not every man or woman cheats on their spouse, but there is in the human heart, bound up in the human heart, a perverse desire to do what is forbidden. And Paul's point in, in verse 8 is that until we're commanded not to do something, we don't realize, and we don't realize we're not supposed to do it, we may not even have the desire to do it. But as soon as we realize it's wrong, which the law points out, we just have to do that thing. Augustine, who, fourth century bishop and African bishop, made this point in a variety of his writings, but, but maybe most personally in, in his, uh, what's off-read, known as the Confessions. He tells the personal story about when he was a teenager. He writes, near our vineyard, there was a pear tree laden with fruit that was not attractive in either flavor or form. One night when I had played until dark in the sandlot with some other youths, we went to shake that tree and carry off its fruit. From it, we carried off huge loads, not to feast on, but to throw to the pigs, although we did eat a few ourselves. We did it just because it was forbidden, he says. Our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. By nature, our sin-cursed hearts want to do what we're not permitted to do. Again, just give somebody a hard boundary. Say so you cannot cross. You can even, on a more, I guess, casual level, just tell somebody, you know, you're sitting with somebody, do not look behind you. And there's no way that person's not going to look behind them. We have in our, in our hearts, bound up in our hearts, this desire to do what we're forbidden from doing. And again, the problem is not the law. It is our sin-laden and unglorified hearts. Paul says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came and I died. Now here what he's referring to is the way the law exposed his wrong self-perception. Paul thought he was doing great. He thought he was honoring God. He thought he was living a, a God-pleasing life. He thought he was actually living in a, in a way that was finally free. And God was fully pleased with him because he was keeping the rules as best he knew. But when he really understood what God required of him, not just outward obedience, but obedience, perfect obedience from the heart, he realized that he was dead, condemned, under God's judgment. That's what he means by he died. He realized he was a sinner. He was dead, and he had not done anywhere nearly enough because he couldn't do enough to satisfy God's requirement. You know, it's very possible for us to be self-deceived. 
more than just possible, it's actually a problem that each of us has. We all have blind spots. We all have areas where we think we are, you know, have this certain high character. We think we're doing great, but in reality, we're actually failing. We all have perceived strengths that are actually not strengths at all, where we have deceived ourselves into believing something about ourselves that's not true. I'll never forget when Janine and I moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, for me to attend seminary, we, uh, we moved into what was really the worst area of Grand Rapids, and we were in this uh, two-level townhome. Well, right next to us was another couple of the exact same age with children the exact same age. So we had two boys, and they were young. I think they were you know, three and two and one or three and one. And, uh, and they, were, they had same, two boys, same ages, and we just developed this incredible friendship with them. You know, it's kind of one of those unique seasons in life. And so we did everything together. We had meals together. You know, we, we, we went out to movies together. We got babysitters and we went and did fun stuff together. We were together all the time. We just uh, were, were always around each other. And I remember one day we were, we were just sitting there thinking, okay, where are we, where are we gonna have dinner? Where are we gonna go for dinner? And I said, I don't know, just casually, I just said, you know, look, doesn't matter to me. I mean, I'm, you know me, I'm just, I'm super chill. Well, I'll never forget this lady, the wife of this other couple said, you're not chill at all. You're not the least bit chill. I mean, you're calm and you're self-controlled, but you're not chill at all. You have a very specific way that you expect things to go. And I was shocked by that because I really thought if there's anybody who's a super chill guy, it's me. And I looked at Janine and she said, she's got, you figured out. I mean, <laughs> she knows what's going on. It's one thing to think we're chill when we're not. It's another to think we're righteous when we're not. It's one thing to think, yeah, look, I'm an easygoing guy. It's another to think that we've done enough to satisfy the perfect standard of a holy God. We all have blind spots, but the only fatal blind spot is to believe that we've been good enough to merit our salvation, and because of that, we don't really need a Savior. The law of God won't allow us to have that misconception. The law accuses, the law incites rebellion, the law reveals to us how far we've fallen from God's standard of perfection. And that brings us to verse 12. Paul says in verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So as to the initial question, is the law sin? Paul answers, no, of course not. The law is holy and righteous and good. The law is good in that it promotes human flourishing. Man's highest well-being, it showcases the goodness of God. So what we have in the commands of God is for our good. The law is, is holy in that it reflects God's holy character. It flows out of God's holy character. The law is righteous in that it, is, it shows what is equitable. It reflects the, the justice and the perfection of God, and it demands from us perfection. The law is God's gracious way of revealing to us our shortcomings and sinful flaws. So what does that have to do with how we grow and change? Here's our final point. 
the starting point for change, is the humble confession that we cannot change ourselves. I've got a friend who's a pastor in his late 40s, and um, he said, I may have shared this with you before, he said when he was 25 and just finish, uh, finishing up a seminary, he said, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to change the world by the power of the gospel. I'm going to change the world forever. And then he got married and uh, sort of put that aside. He said, you know what, at least I can change my family. I can change, I can change us. And then as he got into, he had kids and got into his 40s, he said, I can't change anything. I can't change myself. I can't do anything that will bring about lasting change in my own strength. The law, which has been the focus of this passage, was never intended to bring salvation. It was always intended to expose sin and point us to the only one who can save, Jesus the Christ. Now, we've talked about how people change, both, both in this message and then part one a few weeks ago. But I have to say, I've been operating on the assumption that we talk about how people change, that I'm talking to believers, talking to Christians. But if you're not a Christian, if you've not turned from your sin, if you've not come to the end of yourself and dispense with your own self-salvation project, you have no hope of ever really changing. Now, that's not to say you, you can do some things better than you used to. You can erupt in anger maybe less frequently than you used to, but you have no hope of changing in a way that would ever endear you to God, that would ever merit God's forgiveness, that would ever earn for you a place in God's kingdom. No hope of ever being good enough. to be received and forgiven by God. No hope of being reconciled to God. What God demands for you, from you is what he demands from each of us, and that is perfection. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son to live the perfect life that we failed to live and to die on a cross for our rebellion, and he was raised again on the third day as God showed his power to bring life from the dead. So until this morning, maybe you're like Paul and you felt like you've been a really good person. And you know, you've been generous and you've been kind and you've been thoughtful and you've had the best manners and you've just been a great person. And maybe you even think like Paul did it once, that you've just been fully alive and God's been pleased with you. Well, this morning we've seen in the last couple of weeks what the law requires and what the law does. What the law demands is complete and total obedience, both outwardly and inwardly. Not just perfect actions, although certainly none of us can say we've, we, we've done that, but also perfect thoughts, sinless motives, perfect uh, words. Well, let the law do for you this morning what the law did for Paul. Bring you to a place where you realize you're broken and you're sinful and you're in need of a Savior. The standard that God has set forth is one that neither you nor I could ever reach. May God bring you to a place where you confess your inability, recognize your sinfulness, and turn to Jesus for deliverance. Let's pray.